Our text for this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we feel our need of you so often. And so we thank you for extending your grace to us in Christ and for gathering us together as your people this morning. We thank you for this portion of your word and for delivering it to us today that we might meditate and consider the promises of the covenant that you have made with us in and through Christ. Would you use your word by your spirit to equip us to believe and to apply this aspect of your word to our lives? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, perhaps one of the strangest and most beautiful books in the entire Bible is the book of Hosea. Perhaps you have read it. Hosea was the last prophet who was sent by God to the northern kingdom of Israel right before they fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC. And at that time, Israel was extremely prosperous, both in their influence and in their economy. Um, and yet, during Hosea's ministry, they were marked by moral decay and idolatry, the worship of other gods. And despite God's faithfulness to Israel, Israel broke God's covenant with them and committed in what is described as spiritual adultery. And so Hosea, in a strange way, was called to serve as a parable to Israel about God's relationship with his people. And you remember that God called Hosea to marry and to start a family with a woman whose name is Gomer. And yet, despite Hosea's faithfulness to Gomer, like Israel, she broke her marriage covenant and abandoned Hosea. Now, if you were Hosea, you were no doubt hurt and shamed by Gomer's unfaithfulness and left with this burning question, how are you going to respond? Would you divorce Gomer and walk away from this broken marriage, or would you seek to be 
reconciled. And the beautiful story of Hosea is that God called Hosea to search for Gomer and to restore his marriage with Gomer. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a friend of Hosea's and you hear about his pursuit of Gomer and wanting to restore this broken marriage. What kind of concerns or questions would you have or would you ask Hosea? Would you ask questions like, are you, are you sure this is a good idea? I mean, it's not as if Gomer has actually changed at all. Why would this time be any different than the last? What, what would it actually take to restore Hosea and Gomer's relationship for good? You see, this is the question that looms at the end of the Old Testament. How will God restore his relationship with his unfaithful people in such a way that it would last forever? Now, the Jews in the first century had an answer to this question of how God would restore his relationship to his people. And in fact, they thought about the answer to this question so much that they created movements that were dedicated to answering this question and teaching others their answer to this question. And these movements in the first century had a lot of cultural power and a lot of influence within the Jewish community. And this wasn't just in general, it was also true in the lives of those Jewish Christians that the author of Hebrews is speaking to in the book of Hebrews. And this is because, and we need to remember this, that the book of Hebrews doesn't exist in a cultural vacuum. You know, so two of the most influential movements at that time were the movement of the Pharisees and the movement of the Sadducees. The Pharisees were these theologically conservative people who gathered together to commit themselves to the practice of personal holiness. And they were famous for putting together these traditions and habits that would help people keep God's law. Now, the Sadducees weren't as focused on the personal side of holiness as the Pharisees. They were focused more on being politically savvy with the Romans and committing themselves to funding and supporting the worship in the temple. Now, both of these movements and others in the first century, they all kind of expressed themselves in a variety of different ways, but it doesn't matter what kind of renewal movement in the first century you're looking at. They all share the, fun, the same fundamental belief. And that belief is our relationship with God will be restored by a better commitment to his covenant. Now, we too do not live in a cultural vacuum. We are surrounded by spiritual and secular movements. And some of these movements pull us in a legalistic way, more like the Pharisees, committing ourselves more and more to moral or spiritual self-improvement. And other movements are more focused on keeping us in line through institutional worship. And if we would just continue to give ourselves to those institutions, well, then we would definitely find what we're looking for. Other movements aren't even focused on either of those things. They're focused on private spirituality and mystical experience. And the reason that these movements, whether the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or any in our own day, are so compelling to us isn't because we are foolish or ignorant or stupid. It's because they have convinced us that that is the best way that we will restore our relationship with God. And it's not just the people out there that are being duped by this, it's our own hearts. All of us at some degree tend to believe that our relationship with God 
can and will be restored through our good intentions and our best efforts. And yet the author of Hebrews in our passage this morning is giving us a much different answer. Our relationship with God, the author of Hebrews says, is not restored by a better commitment to his law, but by a better covenant through Christ. This, in fact, is the author's main point in verse 6 when he says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. I want you guys to notice in this verse that after speaking about Christ's priestly ministry in the heavenly realm, he now moves to saying that Christ's ministry is superior than that of the Levites, not just because of where it is happening, namely the heavenly realm, but because of what it is based on, namely these better promises that make up a better covenant. And this idea of being better and surpassing is echoed actually in verse 13, when the author says, in speaking of a new covenant, of this better covenant, God makes the first one obsolete. The author is saying that by the establishment of this new covenant, the old covenant, that is the Mosaic law, was made obsolete. Now, what does that mean? Well, the the word that's translated here, obsolete, it, it doesn't mean that it was a mistake. It means that it was something that has been used up, or or maybe a better way to think about this is that its purpose has been fulfilled. And so what this means is that to turn away from Christ and to simply renew one's commitment to the old covenant, it reveals a fundamental misunderstanding about the old covenant and its purpose. This is pointing out that the old covenant was not a mistake, it was simply incomplete. And this is what the author says in verse 7. He says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Again, this is not implying that God's covenant to his people in the Old Testament was somehow bad, as though God had this plan A with Israel that he was working on and hoping would work out, and that failed. And so God has turned away from plan A, and now he's focusing on plan B, his work in the church. It's important to understand that what is being said here of fault is best understood as needing to be fulfilled. And we get this sense as we read the Old Testament, especially in light of the New. We see time and time again examples of God's covenant grace And we sense it in his promises to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. Promises that he would crush the head of the serpent, that he would provide a perfect paradise, that he would rescue his people, that he would provide an everlasting kingdom and his permanent presence. And yet each time in the midst of every covenant of grace that he gives, we are left with this question, when? When will this perfectly and permanently be fulfilled? And we not only get this sense of it needing to be fulfilled from the promises of the Old Testament, we get this sense from the patterns that we see in the Old Testament. Patterns like rescue and deliverance. Patterns like God's tabernacle and temple of kings and prophets and priests and sacrifices. Each one not being a hero in the faith, 
but giving us that same longing. When will this pattern be perfectly fulfilled? It's almost as if God's gracious covenant is like a ceramic cup. And he gave it to his people and he filled it up halfway, promising that it would be filled to the brim if they would simply just wait for the coming promises. But the old covenant was not just incomplete in the sense of needing to be fulfilled. It was also broken. You guys notice in verses eight and nine, as we look at the prophecy given through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, the author points out, he finds fault with them. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The word here that's translated did not continue in verse nine is language in the Hebrew that's described of keeping one's marriage vows. This prophecy in Jeremiah that's being quoted in Hebrews is taking us back to the story of Hosea and Gomer, taking us back to this parable of God's relationship with his people. And the question is, who broke the covenant? It was not God. God remained faithful to his covenant that he gave to his people. It was his people who forsook the covenant. And we sense this all over the Old Testament. As God graciously rescues his people from Egypt, graciously gives them his covenant in light of that rescue, provides them these blessings that will come through their continued obedience or curses in the face of their disobedience. And the Old Testament is the working out of those blessings and those curses. And God always is faithful to his covenant. And yet his people prove themselves time and time again to be the problem, to be the ones who are unable to uphold this covenant. God is rejected time and time again until God's people who were already exiled in their hearts are then exiled in history. It's not just that God handed his people this beautiful ceramic cup and filled it up partially, waiting for it to be fully fulfilled. It's that the people received this cup and then threw it on the floor and sought cups elsewhere, turning away from Christ and renewing one's commitment to the old covenant. Well, what it's trying to do is is treat that covenant of grace as a covenant of works, that by by believing that we in ourselves can actually pick up those pieces and put them back together and fill in what was lacking. And we can look at kind of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and we can think how silly for them to rely on their own strength, but this same mentality is all over American Christianity. We might think of it as the the false gospel of rededicating my life to Christ. This belief that somehow if I just have a better commitment to God, somehow this will be different 
this time. It's not a gospel of grace. It's a gospel of a second chance. It's the gospel of this time I will get things right. I remember many times in my youth being offered this opportunity to pray the sinner's prayer again and again and again, believing that this time I was truly saved. This time my relationship with God was truly and permanently restored. And all of it was not based on God's grace, but my better commitment. The author of Hebrews is calling us to forsake this false gospel, to forsake a gospel that says, by your good intentions and by your best efforts, you can restore your relationship with God. The author of Hebrews is saying, stop trying to clean yourself up and fulfill God's law in your own strength. You don't need a better commitment to God. What we need is a better covenant with God. And this is what he has given us in Christ. Again, this is the main point of verse six, when he says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. What makes the covenant with Christ so much better? Well, it is because in and through Christ and these better promises, God has renewed his commitment with us. This is what Jeremiah is saying and is promising in verse 8, where God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's important for us to understand that this word new, it doesn't mean brand new, as in of a completely different kind, going back to that idea of a plan A or a plan B. It was always God's intention to stick with plan A, his gracious covenant, now renewed for his people. God was picking up the pieces, as it were, on behalf of his people. But God has not only renewed his covenant, is promising to renew his covenant, he's also promising to expand his covenant. I want you guys to notice verses 10, 11, and 12. This is kind of the meat of the promises of the new covenant in the Old Testament. And we see it kind of broken down into these three sections of I will do this, and I will do this, and you will be this In verse 10, God says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And in verse 11, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And verse 12, and I will remember their sins no more. So what are the better promises that God gives to his people as he promises to renew his covenant with them? Well, the first promise is, is the promise of full atonement. Look at verse 12. He says, I will remember their sins no more, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And this is contrasted in Hebrews chapter 10, where the author of Hebrews is saying, in the old covenant, there was a continual reminder of the sins of God's people. This idea of always needing to sacrifice for sin, to point them to Christ so that they're 
actual hope and faith would be in Christ, the fulfillment of it. But the pattern of sacrifice continued day after day, year after year, because their forgiveness was still a payment that was yet to be made. And so in this sense, where there was a reminder of sin every year, waiting for Christ's atoning work, now in this new covenant, God's mercy toward our iniquities is not something that is remembered over and over and over again. It is something that has found full atonement. And this is why later in the book of Hebrews, the focus will be on a cleansed conscience. That in our hearts, we can have peace about our relationship with God because we know all of our sins through Christ have been fully atoned for. The second promise that God gives us is not only that our sin would be fully atoned, but that his community would be broader than ever. If you guys look at verse 11, he says, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. It's not that in the Old Testament, the people of God did not know God. They did. God truly did reveal himself to them through the gracious covenant that he gave them. But what's being pointed out here is that that knowledge of the Lord, that relationship is going to be expanded. He says, from the least of them to the greatest. And all over the prophecies of the Old Testament, we see the promise of Abraham, or promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12, that through you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That that is the promise God has made in this new covenant. That as he renews it, people who are of Abraham's line from a biological sense will come to faith in Christ and find the fulfillment of this covenant, but it will be extended also to the Gentiles. We are an expression of this new covenant promise being fulfilled in and through Christ. Full atonement, a broader community, and perhaps the most striking of all, a deeper transformation. This is the first promise that we see kind of in the scheme of Jeremiah where he says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is perhaps one of the most striking promises of the new covenant, that our sins would be fully atoned for, that the community of God's people would be broadened and that we would actually experience deep personal transformation. In the old covenant, the spirit was at work to draw people to trust in Christ through the sacrifices and through the patterns that they saw. But that sense of personal transformation was still unfulfilled in, in a sense. The law was written on tablets of stone, the Apostle Paul will remind us in 2 Corinthians. But now, the law will not just simply be a guide outside, but will be written on the hearts of God's people. This, this promise is echoed in Ezekiel chapter 36, when 
through Ezekiel, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The promise is not reinstating or renewing an old covenant written on tablets of stone. It is a renewed covenant that places God's word in our actual hearts by renewing our spirits by his. So these are the promises that God has given, the better promises, full atonement, broader community, and deep personal transformation by his spirit. These are better than the promises that were given to his people in the Old Testament. And yet, it doesn't matter how great those promises are unless they've actually been fulfilled. And that is the point of the author of Hebrews' whole sermon. This is why he's focusing on the superiority of Jesus. That Jesus is better than any other spiritual movement because it is in and through Jesus alone that this new and better covenant has been enacted. That's what he says again in verse 6. He says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent as the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. On the cross, Christ declared, it is finished. Your sin has been fully atoned for through the life and death of Jesus. Not just that you need to always be regularly sacrificing Jesus over and over again for your sins, but that Christ's single sacrifice has covered all of your sin for your entire life, including your sin nature. Full atonement has been enacted through the work of Christ. As I've already alluded to, we are an expression, Jews and Gentiles together, of this broader community promised. Galatians 3, verses 27 to 29 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There's a a, a sneak peek of this promise in the book of Hosea, that as Hosea and Gomer's relationship is restored. One of the names of their children is not my people. And as Hosea restores his marriage covenant with Gomer, it's a picture of people who are not called God's people now being called God's people. This has been fulfilled in and through Christ. Not that our distinctions go away, but that those distinctions and and diversity now make up God's people forever because of this covenant promise being fulfilled in Christ. 
And we also see this deeper transformation being accomplished. This is, I think, why in Romans chapter 8, the focus of Paul is not on people being restored to a right relationship and then keeping the law. What is being focused on is the transformation that we experience because of the Holy Spirit given to us through the ministry of Christ. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We have been given the spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And this provides us the power that we need in order to walk with love of God and love of others as our desire. Now, this is obviously something that all of us, as we think about our life experience, go, well, that ha isn't happening perfectly in my life. You tell me about this full atonement and this broader community and this deep transformation, and I don't feel it in full yet. And this is where the New Testament is full of this idea of an already and not yet reality of Christ's mediation of this better covenant. In a sense, we have full atonement of our sins. We are seeing this community being broadened and we are experiencing the work of the spirit, but we still have this old man and the flesh. And Galatians will tell us that the spirit and the flesh are at war with each other to keep us from doing the things that we want to do. And yet the promise is not that we will just keep God's law and that our relationship will be restored by our effort. The promise is that God's spirit in us will be the means by which we experience that transformation. Progressively, and then one day, permanently. That when Christ returns, we will be perfectly and fully restored. It's like the Japanese artwork, Kintsuri, of this, of this cup that was broken and then put back together expertly. And that that piecing together is then showcased by this gold adhesive that holds it together. And it becomes a more beautiful cup as a result of the entire process. That this new covenant that we have in Christ truly is better, not because it is disconnected from the old, but it is the fulfillment and the restoring and the beautifying of the old covenant because of the work of Christ. This is why it is foolish to turn away from Christ and to go back to the old covenant. This is why it is foolish for us to turn away from Christ or to add Christ by moving after other spiritual movements because there's only one cup. There's only one covenant of grace 
that has expressed itself all throughout history in different dispensations, you might say, administrations, you might say. But that one covenant of grace has now been presented as this beautiful and glorious and perfect thing in and through the perfect and permanent work of Christ. The broken pieces have been restored, not through our effort, but through God's grace. And the promises of the old covenant have found their fulfillment. The patterns of the old covenant have now find their, found their final shape. There's no other cup to go back to. And so, with the author of Hebrews, we must recognize that we don't need, as we come to worship the Lord, a better commitment to God. What you and I need is Christ. To receive the renewed covenant in him through faith. And it is through faith in Christ that we find the full atonement for our sins. Today, tomorrow, and forever. It is in and through faith in Christ that we have perfect fellowship with our heavenly father now and tomorrow and the next day and for all eternity and fellowship with our brothers and sisters. And it is through Christ that the Holy Spirit will empower us today and tomorrow and through all eternity to love God and to love others as God's law guides. You do not need a deeper commitment. Receive this better covenant by faith alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the remarkable evidence of your sovereign and perfect plan to be our God and that we would be your people. Lord Jesus, thank you for fulfilling all of the law's demands on our behalf and for mediating to us a better covenant with better promises. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are at work in our lives, that we are not being called to exert more moral effort, but that through and in Christ, you are transforming us as we behold him and trust in his work more and more. And so thank you for this portion of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we thank you. Amen.